Mr. Chairman, as a corn root, I speak for millions of my kind who can't be here to defend themselves. Pests are stalking our stocks and undermining our roots. But we can elect to protect with a legacy of strength. Poncho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment system increases nearby microbial activity to help us grow stronger. That's smart. Ladies and gentlemen, please, this is a corn roots movement. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Poncho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment. Always read and follow label directions. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us, letting us be part of your day here at Midweek. Interesting week indeed with the uh, congressional hearing yesterday and a public hearing today on the RFS. We'll be talking about that. We'll get an update on waters of the U.S. really tangled up in the courts. Don Parrish from the American Farm Bureau Federation will join us with an update. We'll talk markets with Arlen Suderman from INTLFC Stone. And we'll also talk today with the CEO of the United Soybean Board, Polly Rulin. The soybean industry is right in the middle of this whole growing issue between cell and plant-based products and the livestock industry. I mean, the soy industry obviously very much involved in the plant-based products but also providing feed for the livestock industry polly rulin says there's room for both and she'll talk about that a little bit later on in the program but right now happy to be joined by Jarrett renshaw from reuters uh, he's on the political beat but of course long time on the uh, biofuels energy beat as well the two keep coming together Jarrett. and yesterday interesting congressional hearing on the rfs what was your takeaway you know, I guess my, my initial takeaway yesterday was that, you know, absent testimony from Andrew Wheeler, the head of the EPA, it tended to be just a kind of rehash of the arguments uh, that I think most people that have been watching this issue know well. Um, you know, the, the most important person um, to explain why the EPA is doing it and, and the mythology, mythology that it's doing, methodology, sorry, that is doing um, in terms of uh, uh, trying to mitigate the impact of the waivers wasn't in the room. So, you know, so my takeaway was not too much because uh, I think everything uh, that was spoken yesterday is uh, we generally know for people that have been following this issue. So do you expect Congress to actually do something about this or was this more window dressing yesterday, the hearing that was held? Yeah, I don't. I don't get any sense that Congress is going to weigh in, and 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 as we know, even if Congress did weigh in, do you think they'd actually be able to move anything um, substantive? I mean, uh, they had trouble with relatively routine issues um, getting anything done, where there's probably wide consensus, and and and, and this issue, which is extremely divisive, um, I can't see a scenario where where they they actually get to do anything. You know, I think the, the most important role Congress and members of Congress play is, is kind of what Grassley and Ernst have done and, and other folks and advocates on both sides is kind of pressuring, putting pressure on the EPA and the Department of Energy and Ag to do stuff through the rules process. Uh, that, that seems to be the kind of the soft spot and, and where you can, you know, where, where advocates of either side can get stuff done. So I think that's probably what we'll see here over the next uh, six months here you know as the EPA considers some of the some of the rules uh, starting today 
Now, House Ag Committee Chair Colin Peterson has filed a bipartisan bill that would require all information provided by refiners in their petition for a waiver be disclosed publicly. Now, we'll see if that bill goes anywhere or not. Meanwhile, uh, Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, in his testimony yesterday called the uh, administration's plan a bait-and-switch that would not help bring idled biofuels plants back to life. And I guess that's a that's at the heart of this uh, issue, right, uh, Jarrett? Uh, can, the, the, can the biofuels industry show that these exemptions, these waivers, are causing hardship, causing plants to idle and workers to be laid off? Yeah, I mean, that, that, is the, that is, to me, the, the, most, uh, the biggest challenge that the biofuel industry faces. On the biodiesel side, I think, uh, I think there's consensus from both, both sides that there is, has been an impact. Um, uh, but on the ethanol side, uh, you know, you could point to data that show, uh, you know, overproduction, uh, you know, just uh, flat demand, uh, or, you know, countless other factors that are not SREs that are weighing down the industry. So I think the bio, I think the ethanol industry in particular has some issues in, in trying to make the case um, that the SREs are having a widespread impact and are the culprit for uh for having the uh you know all these plants idle so that is the challenge and uh, listen there's plants are idling people are out of jobs i mean there there has to be some connection um it's just it's it's hard to find it exactly in, in, in the data that that the publicly available data epa holding a public hearing today in michigan we've seen these before uh kind of know what's going to be said to a certain extent uh, at the hearing do you expect anything to come from this no i, th- I think you, you you said it. i mean there's not a it's a one-sided conversation so it's not like you get a give and take with the epa i think uh you'll see a unified front uh from the biofuel side and, and the oil side i think you, you they'll have um you know, uh, uh, orchestrated talking points across the board to get the message across. But ultimately, it's the work that is done not in public. You know, the lobbyist work, uh, the work by senators and uh, other other advocates behind the scenes that will ultimately influence whatever the outcome is. Um, as you saw Senator Ernst from Iowa said if this, this doesn't go the way that she thought it was going to go, that she would call for the resignation uh, of EPA Wheeler. I mean, that that kind of pressure, I think, is probably ultimately more important than, say, what's spoken at today's hearing. Although we've seen a change in that position not make much difference. <laughs> I mean, it didn't. We went from Scott Pruitt to Andrew Wheeler, and there hasn't seemed to be a, a big improvement. Yeah, I, 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 one of the things that, that not puzzles me, I, I guess I understand it, is that the biofuel industry keeps laying the blame at the EPA. I mean, and I understand it, um, but ultimately it's the, you know, it is the Trump administration, you know, to to absolve uh, the president of of any blame, I think is is, is too convenient. And obviously, you know, Senator Ernst is a Republican and she's, uh, she's part of leadership in the Senate and, you know, she has obligations there, but, you know, I, I ultimately, the, the responsibility, accountability doesn't fall far from the president's office. Um, if he wants something done, Andrew Wheeler is not a you know 
a rival fiefdom. He is part of the administration. So, yeah, I, 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 I always get puzzled uh, in, in when I see these uh, these statements that that that, that really uh, go after Wheeler and kind of fail to mention Trump's role in the whole thing. I agree. I have made that point over and over. At some point, he's the boss, and uh, if he wants something done, he just needs to step in and say, this is what I want done, and I, I don't see where that's been happening. It's, it, he's kind of, it's a good cop, bad cop scenario they kind of play, are playing out, it seems to me, where the president makes these positive public statements about the biofuels industry, but then lets his EPA administrator go a different route. So uh, we'll see how this all plays out. Jared, as always, uh, I know you're a... Really busy on the political beat these days. Thanks for taking time to be with us. Hey, happy to be here. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Jarrett Renshaw with Reuters. Coming up next, where do we stand with Waters of the U.S.? It's really kind of tied up in the courts. We're going to try to sort through all that with Don Parrish from the American Farm Bureau Federation. That's next on AOA. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Success sounds like this to a credence soybean grower. Along with 43 new varieties this year, credence soybeans come with agronomic expertise from BASF. That means expert advisors who bring local insights on seed selection, management decisions, and crop protection options. Knowing the kind of success you're shooting for? That's smart. Talk to your authorized credence retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. In the grain and oil seed sector, an hour into the day on Wednesday, we had a narrow mix. Corn futures trending three quarters of a cent to a penny and a quarter higher. Soybeans fraction lower. Wheat futures trending one to three lower. Grain futures could be in limbo until USDA releases its WASDE report on November 8th. Little fresh news, path of least resistance said to be lower. South American weather, that's something traders are still keeping an eye on. Above normal temperatures and below normal rainfall this week in Paraná and Mato Grosso in Brazil will deplete soil moisture. Not a good day to try and harvest in parts of the Midwest and the U.S. today. Snow, rain changing to snow being seen on the radar in Illinois, for example. In wheats, we're trending three and a fraction lower in Chicago. December down three and a half at 5.08. Kansas City, December at 4.17 and a quarter, down a penny and three quarters. Minneapolis spring wheat, December down a penny at 5.24 and three quarters of a cent. In corn, December, penny and a quarter, 3.87 and a half. And November soybeans, three quarters of a cent lower, 9.17 and a half. Livestock at the Merck. Strength in cattle futures once again. December live cattle up 82 at 117.65. Feeder cattle November up 57 at 146.05. No cash cattle activity to report on the week so far. Lean hog futures December up 62 at 64.95. Points S&P down 2. December crude oil down 36. In the outside markets on Wall Street, the Dow is up 9. NASDAQ down 11. December crude oil down 34 cents, 55.20 a barrel. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. 
Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, let's talk markets with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. Arlen, let's let's start with the harvest, which in some places has struggled all along, and other places has been rolling along pretty well throughout October. But now a big chunk of the Midwest uh, things come to a screeching halt with the uh, the weather that's moving across, more winter-like weather. Yeah, it really is. Uh, kind of a rough finish to a rough year. Uh, the year that won't end. A lot of surprises, some of them good, some of them bad. Uh, a lot of uncertainty continues, and uh, just hoping USDA provides some greater clarity as we move into the month of November on the supply side, and, and that the China trade talks provide a little bit more clarity on the demand side over the coming month. So again, my question, I keep coming back to this, is the market's focus right now more on the production side or the demand side? Well, I think both right now, and, and it has very little clarity from both. So rallies get sold uh, because it really doesn't have any justification for sustaining a rally right now. It's become very skeptical of any increased demand news or of uh, shorter crop news. And uh, at the same time, breaks get bought um, because uh, funds are really wary of being short in this environment when we could get a surprise on both the supply and demand side. So we're just kind of chopping around and marking time. Let's talk China. We are left seemingly over and over trying to um, read the tea leaves, read between the lines, uh, try to decipher you know, through all the news that comes out. Just where are we as far as China really stepping up and making even bigger ag purchases from the U.S.? Well, ironically, now China's balking about having to uh, buy more than what it needs, so to speak. And the original commitment of $50, $50 billion in uh, ag commodities was going to be a stretch. Uh, that's far more than they've ever purchased before. Obviously, that's a, a product of both quantity and price. So if prices go up, then obviously it'd be easier to hit that. And the farmers would love to see higher prices, although end users wouldn't necessarily. Um, but China has kind of balked at that all along. And they've said, well, you know, let the market forces work. A state-controlled economy now suddenly worried about market forces. Uh, but in the end, they're not going to buy more than they need or not significantly more over a long period of time. Uh, regardless of what they say in the agreement, that's just what their history says. Um, but at the same time, they do need some type of an agreement. They want an agreement. Obviously, President Trump needs and wants an agreement uh, uh, to help his reelection campaign in the face of an impeachment inquiry. So there's a lot of forces moving both of them to find a way to get an agreement, and it has to be an agreement that looks good to their constituency on both sides. So they're moving that direction. That's why the November 17th date has kind of been the target. And now here in the last 10 minutes or so, we find out that that APEC meeting in Chile that where they were going to sign the agreement has been suspended because of the violent protests in Chile. Uh, so they have to find a new date, and maybe that gives them a little bit of freedom to have a little bit more time to work out these details to get an agreement. I guess we shouldn't be surprised, right? That's kind of been uh, the pattern throughout uh, this whole situation for the last year and a half. It really has. 
has been. It's a frustration to the markets, um, and it's frustration to farmers. It's a frustration to end users. Uh, and uh, we'd just like to have some clarity on what the fundamentals are going to be and when we're going to get out of this. And, and even the stock market, we did get some good GDP numbers out this morning, and, and we have seen some of the uh, recent data show that some corporations over the last month are saying, well, maybe we're starting to get a little bit more certainty, know what we're dealing with with these trade talks, that we can make some capital expenditures. And I think that's what we need to do is remove some of the uncertainty so farmers know how to plan, end users know how to plan, corporate America knows how to plan, and then we can deal with whatever the situation is if we just know what the parameters are. Talking with Arlen Suderman with INTL FC Stone. Arlen, I I am hearing analysts make the case for the markets buying more soybean acres next year. Are you uh, are you part of that camp of that that school of thought? Well, certainly the 12 million acres that we lost, a portion of that probably needs to come back. Demand is not what it has been because of African swine fever, and that will continue to be the problem. But we. The dropping of the 12 million acres essentially allows us to erase the billion bushel deficit or a a sizable portion of it, but we need to have some acres come back in order to match the demand. Go all the way back up to the 90 million or so that we were at? No, that would give us back in a surplus situation once again. Trade deal or no trade deal, Western Hemisphere supplies of soybeans would be too high, and we would, even if the big guarantees of China buying our soybeans, that would send the rest of the market to cheaper supplies in Brazil, and it would still depress prices. So uh, we've got to come somewhere in the middle. And, and where it's going to be, I normally have my the, my next marketing year balance sheet done by now, but I'm, I'm waiting to see right now, here again, I'm waiting to see what's the size of this year's crop and what's demand going to be based on the China trade negotiations. was hoping to have that here in early November so I'd know how to shape my 2020-2021 balance sheet. Do you think you'll have a pretty good handle on the size of this year's crop in that November report? Or is it, I mean, there's still going to be harvesting going on for a while yet. I mean, will we really know or will we have enough information at that point? Uh, we will not know the final crop sizes, but I think that November will st- really uh, do a better job of establishing the trend of uh, are we near where USDA currently says we are or are we below where USDA currently says we are. And if we're below, the scope of the change in this report should give us some idea of the scope of the further follow-through reduction we should see in December. So that will give us a better idea of what we can anticipate out of that January report and and therefore kind of have a better feel for what the market needs to do in the way of buying or discouraging bean or co- and corn acres for 2020. Is there anything short of a deal with China that sparks a rally at this point? Um, that would have to then come on the supply side, and that would mean a more significant reduction in the size of this year's crops. Um, and just kind of using some round numbers of what might uh, kind of spark that type of a sustained rally would probably be if we saw soybeans drop in this next report by two bushel, um, and, or, and or if we saw the corn yield drop four or more bushels, then I think that type of uh, a change would start saying, oh, no, small crops get smaller. 
we need to start uh, rallying prices to encourage uh, production in the southern hemisphere uh, and rationing demand because January will probably be a continuation of that trend. South American weather challenges, are those enough yet to uh, get people's attention or not? No, really not. It's just amazing to me um, that uh, the month of October is is on pace to be the sixth driest of the last four decades for the Brazil soybean growing belt overall. Um, But yet, when you look at the rainfall that they received overall, it has generally been sufficient um, for production. It has delayed planting. Um, but the forecast continues to show that as we move in the month of November that the rains will pick up. They've had enough rain now to kind of germinate crops, and the rains are expected to pick up. And overall, as we talk to our people in Brazil, they still expect a normal soybean crop. Their concern, again, is that the delayed um, start and finish, anticipated finish of the soybean crop is going to squeeze the safrina corn planting, which could, which could lead to a smaller corn crop and a smaller exportable supply of corn for 2020. That's their primary concern at this point. And finally, Arlen, I mean, we focus a lot on, on the board, but what about uh, what's going on with basis levels around the country? really strong and uh, there are those who argue that means that the 2019 crop is not as large as forecast. Uh, The other argument is yes it is but farmers are just bullish and hanging on and because they have the cash payments from the government to live on and so they're not selling so processors are having to push the basis uh, in order to keep the supply pipeline flowing. Uh, The truth is somewhere in the middle likely um, basis is obviously hotter in those areas uh, of greatest concerns about the size of the 2019 crop, um, but overall it's very strong. It's more inverted, meaning the deferred basis is much weaker. So if this crop is significantly smaller and or we do get a significant trade deal with China to increase demand, we could have some explosive basis on the back end of that uh, forward curve. Interesting to see that tug of war. I mean, everyone's situation is different, but it what is that price point that it takes to get farmers to actually move grain rather than hold on to it? Yeah, it tends to be a moving target. Or okay, if it gets to here, I will sell. And then the market starts going up, and they start thinking, oh, well, things are turning bullish. Maybe I better move my target up. So they always, it always tends to be a moving target. Yeah, it's interesting to see how that's playing out right now. All right, Arlen, as always, thanks. Good to talk with you. Thank you, Mike. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk with the CEO of the United Soybean Board, Polly Rulin. She's going to weigh in on this plant-based products versus the livestock industry. This is uh, becoming a real battle. Uh, we're seeing more and more money poured into the cell and plant-based industry, more products coming out, more advertising for those products. How does the livestock market or livestock industry respond? The, the soybean industry is right in the middle, a plant-based uh, uh, supplier, of course, of products, but also a p- supplier and provider of feed for the livestock industry. Polly Rudlin says there's room for both in this marketplace. She'll explain next here on AOA. Stay with us.
Mr. Chairman, as a corn root, I speak for millions of my kind who can't be here to defend themselves. Pests are stalking our stocks and undermining our roots. But we can elect to protect with a legacy of strength. Poncho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment system increases nearby microbial activity to help us grow stronger. That's smart. Ladies and gentlemen, please, this is a corn roots movement. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Poncho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. As we see more and more cell and plant-based products come into the market and promotion of them and some big money behind them, we've talked a lot about how the livestock industry responds to that. I've thought a lot about the soybean industry because they're kind of right in the middle. Uh, They... uh, produce plant-based products but also supply feed for the livestock industry is there room for both our next guest thinks there is polly rulin is ceo of the united soybean board polly thank you for joining us thanks for the invitation happy to be here let's talk about this um how, how do you look at this as these new products gain more and more of a foothold in the marketplace uh what should the livestock industry's response be, and, and can the two work together to feed the world? Well, we believe so uh, at, at United Soybean Board. We uh, think that we should think about this from a global perspective as well as a domestic perspective. Granted, in a domestic uh, market, the competition between plant and animal protein is obvious uh, and is heating up. But from the United Soybean Board's perspective, the global market for protein uh, is only getting stronger. We're going to have 9 billion people on the planet by 2050. We believe that promoting U.S. protein as a whole to the world is critically important. And that means that plant protein and animal protein need to get together, work collaboratively on how we're going to strategize U.S. protein uh, as the leader in world markets as the population grows. You know, we've heard that nine billion figure so often, uh, and I think a lot of producers say, "Well, that's that's big picture. Yeah, that's uh, opportunity eventually." But in the, we see something like a trade war disrupt that and, and cause prices to to go down. So it comes back. You focus again on on the domestic marketplace, and if you see, in the case of uh, the livestock industry, if you're seeing uh, some a competitor cut into your market share that can drive your price down even more. So those are some big hurdles to overcome in this collaborative effort that you're talking about. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you in the short term, but I also think that when you're looking at it from, particularly from a checkoff investment perspective, like we look at it at United Soybean Board, we have to think about where the profit potential is for farmers into the future. And we know that the animal demand for animal protein globally is growing. Uh, the demand for plant protein is growing, and we need to think about how to solve real issues in the immediate term, and as well as make sure that we own the protein market with U.S. protein in the long term. And you you made a great point uh, in the introduction, and that was that the soybean industry and soybean farmers serve certain markets with human food, uh, with soybeans and human food, and and a big market with soybeans as feed in animals in animal food. So we're in a, a very unique place, uh, soybean farmers are. 
to understand and bring together that long-term perspective for protein. Listen, we know that there are some countries that can't afford anything but plant protein. We also know that as disposable incomes rise, the demand for animal proteins all the way along the chain from eggs to poultry, fish, uh, pork, and beef grows as disposable income grows in a country. So there is a space here to plan collaboratively and strategically as a protein category in the U.S., uh, taking country by country and understanding how we move folks along that chain uh, and, and, and especially how we help feed people that are in the emerging market side of that chain. How do we get the two sides to work together on this? Well, I don't, okay, um, those of you who know me know that I'm at Soybean and I worked at Beef for 20 mm-hmm. plus years. So I think that they're not two sides. That's sometimes that's the issue with us in agriculture, right? We do tend we tend to take sides. We we tend to see things as black and white. Certainly, the protein category and the opportunity for U.S. protein in the future is not a a thing about sides. It's not me versus them. It's how do we get together on this? Even if we are focused on a domestic market. Uh, that we know the potential for growth in protein consumption. We know people are under-consuming protein. We understand that there is a, is growth potential in the domestic market, but it's nothing like the growth potential in the international market. So I think the first step is not thinking about it as sides, but thinking about it as U.S. farmers, U.S. protein farmers, collaboratively taking on the potential uh, in the global market in coming years. So... You have a protein-first message at a platform here. Uh, how do we? Are discussions going on? Are we? Uh, is that collaborative effort underway, or are you just trying to get it started? Well, it, we're at the, the the leading edge of it. We just kind of rolled out this idea at uh, World Food Prize a couple of weeks ago. But I will tell you, discussions are ongoing. And both the plant protein um, industry and the animal protein industry really does. This message does resonate with them on a global scale, and so we are we're talking to animal protein. I have a lot of great contacts and good thinkers in the animal protein space. So what we hope to do is talk about this and understand how we can work together uh, with each other uh, and non-competitively, or maybe I should say pre-competitively, in a space that has potential for all of us. Yeah, I think your background and soybeans position in both plant protein and animal protein does give you a unique uh, position and perspective on this and I think I think this is a, a critical issue moving forward Polly oh I, I do too listen we know that when the world uh, when we feed the world we have to just not think about feeding them anything we have to think about feeding them nutrient-dense foods first we know that uh, protein consumption in childhood um, make sure that the brain develops normally, make sure that the body develops normally, uh, really does not really really combat stunting, for example, in those populations. And, and for, for, for the childhood health of the world, we need to think about protein first, protein as a first food to feed the world, not necessarily down the road. Holly, thank you for being with us. I look forward to talking with you more about this in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
Take care. Polly Rulon, CEO of the United Soybean Board. All right, that'll wrap it up for today. Tomorrow, lots more to talk about. We have new hemp rules, uh, more RFS uh, hearings going on, lots to talk about. We'll get into all that tomorrow. Hope you'll join us on AOA. AOA.